I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink from them. The great day of the Lord is near near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chafe, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Our Father, we come now 
in humble submission, and we seek for you to teach us, to lead us, and to reveal yourself to us through your very word. We do not sit in judgment on you today, but we come as those you have made, those you sustain, and those you saved, and we submit all of our hearts and wills to the word and the revealed will of God. Help us to understand it well, that we might know our God better and follow him more faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Bunyan wrote his famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, in 1678. It begins with these words. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. Not being able to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do to be saved? For he lived in the city of destruction, which he learnt from his book is doomed to be burned with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both himself and his wife and their four sons would miserably perish, unless some way of escape could be found. So Christian, for that was his name, went home to talk to his family. And they were greatly worried, not because they believed what he said was true, but because they thought some kind of madness had gotten into the poor man. As it was drawing towards night, they hoped that sleep might settle his brains. With all haste, they put him to bed. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. So when morning came, they asked him how he was. It's worse, it's worse, he said. He started to talk to them again about what he had learned in the book, At first they tried to console him, but as he went on, their faces hardened with anger. Finally, they had enough and answered him gruffly with harsh words. Sometimes they even ridiculed him, and other times they scolded him. Finally, they just ignored him. So Christian went to the field, still reading his book and still carrying his burden. And he became so distressed that again he burst out crying, What shall I do to be saved? He looked this way and that as if he would run, but instead he stood still, for he did not know which way to go. And then in the distance, he saw a man approaching, whose name was Evangelist. He walked up to him and asked, why are you weeping for? He answered, sir, I've read in this book that tells me to flee from the wrath to come. Also, I fear that this burden which is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, Therefore, I need to get rid of it. If this is so, said Evangelist, well, then why are you standing still? Because I don't know where to go, he answered. Then Evangelist pointed his finger over a wide field and asked, Do you see the shining light in the distance? I think I do, he said. Evangelist said, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly to it. If you do, you will see the narrow gate. Upon arrival at that gate, when you knock, 
you will be told what you should do. In my dream, Bunyan writes, the man began to run. Well, it's quite a book, isn't it? That Christian's reading. It's giving him quite a bit of trouble. Flee from the wrath to come. Sounds a little too much, doesn't it? Especially in our day. I think maybe many would counsel Christian that he probably ought to put down the book. Maybe watch a little TV. Right? Read the box score. Go shopping. Right? Why, why would anyone want to read such a book? I could only think of one reason. Because it's true. Of course, the book in which Bunyan writes about is the Bible. Perhaps even a little book in the Bible called Zephaniah. Zephaniah, as you've already heard this morning, is a book full of judgment. It's a book of terrible coming wrath, perhaps the most sobering book in all of Scripture. And yet, even in the midst of all this doom and terror, there is a glimmer of light. There is a whisper of hope. There is, as Bunyan would write, a yonder shining light. And by the end we come to this book, if you've read it this week, these three short chapters, the light is no longer glimmering, but it is shining in unimaginable brilliance. And the hope is no longer whispered, but it's shouted from heaven as we shall discover that salvation is not simply escaping the terrible wrath of God, but we'll discover it is actually entering into the very joy and love of the one who has created us. And so here we are for three weeks in Zephaniah. I'm afraid, as, you, as you've again already noted, we have to begin, as Zephaniah does, with judgment. In fact, he begins by introducing himself, doesn't he, there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, we read, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. You note a couple things about that introduction. First of all, that he's, his father's name is Cushi. That's interesting because Cush is the biblical word for the region that we would call Ethiopia or perhaps Sudan. It's the heart of black Africa, if you will. We know at this time, Jerusalem's leadership had strong political ties with the Cushites. And so here's Zephaniah, whose father's name is Cushi. It's leading many to suggest that Zephaniah might be a biracial Jew. That his grandmother, who would be the wife of his grandfather, who's mentioned Gedaliah, was perhaps an African. And therefore they named their son Cushi, which would be Zephaniah's father. In fact, you'll read this book, and in, this, in each chapter, each of the three chapters, he will reference Cush, which leads one scholar to say it only adds to the likelihood that Zephaniah was a biracial Jew. I mention that not because it really helps us understand this book in any way, but it gives me an opportunity to just once again affirm that racism is a great evil. And beyond that, it is a great heresy that rejects the doctrine that Scripture clearly teaches that all people, regardless of race, are equal in value, dignity, and worth because they are created in God's image. And therefore, God's people must reject racism in any form. Well, we also discover that he not only lists his father, but his grandfather and his great-grandfather 
and even his great-great-grandfather, which is actually unheard of in the biblical record. You say, why would he do that? Why would he list so many generations? Well, I would suggest to you it's perhaps because who his great-great-grandfather is. You notice it's none other than King Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings of all of Judah. And though Zephaniah seems to not have been descended through the royal line, perhaps not a descendant of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, he's nevertheless part of the royal family. I think that's important because he's about to declare how wicked Judah is and that God is going to come and destroy them through the mighty army of Babylon, as we'll see in a moment. But he's going to announce that not as an outsider, but as one of them, even as one of the royal uh, family members. So if you were going to say, you know, Listen, America is full of wickedness. God is going to destroy America in judgment, and he's going to begin in D.C. You might want to say, by the way, I'm an American. In fact, my great-great-granddaddy was John Adams, right? I'm one of you, right? And it seems to me that's what Zephaniah is doing. He is a distant cousin to the current king, Josiah, who would reign from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., the last godly king of Judah, you remember it was Josiah who found the book of Deuteronomy in the temple renovation, which led to a, uh, about a decade-long or perhaps 20-year-long spiritual reform in all of Judah. Zephaniah may have played a role supporting Josiah's efforts to bring Judah into repentance, but uh, sadly that repentance did not last too long. In particular, it seems to me what Zephaniah is trying to do is motivate them in, in, to repentance in light of a Babylonian invasion that will bring destruction upon Judah. He warns them of this coming day so that they might know why it happened, that they might repent before it happens, as we'll see later on. You see, God not only seeks his glory in exercising just condemnation, but he seeks glory in sheltering people under his mercy. And so even if as we read judgment here, we need to remember the reason this judgment is forewarned is not simply because God wants to destroy the rebels, but he wants to turn the rebels, transform them into his worshipers, that he might save them. I also suggest to you that this book is not simply a book about an occurrence that happened in 586 B.C. to an ancient people called Judah but that their coming invasion on this land, the coming Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, is a foreshadow of what the Bible routinely calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. You'll see that throughout this book in Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is a day in which God comes and will execute final judgment upon all those who persist in their rebellion and refuse his mercy. And therefore, Zephaniah is incredibly relevant for us today because human sinfulness hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. The sins we'll discover in Zephaniah are not unique to an ancient people in a distant land. They're our sins too. And therefore, I think it will be exceedingly beneficial for us to consider this passage that we too might have the Holy Spirit search our hearts, that we might repent from the sins that seem to arouse the very anger of God. In fact, we see that God is coming at this coming day, and it will be, first of all, a day of terror. A day of terror. His oracle begins with these stunning words in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. You see, the Lord is declaring 
he is going to sweep the world clean. It seems to be an incredibly comprehensive judgment, not just humans. This cataclysmic event that Zephaniah is pro- uh, prophesying about includes creation itself. You notice animals, birds, fish even are all listed that will, will be impacted by this day of the Lord. In fact, it seems to me and to others, by the way, that it is an act of uncreation that God is doing. That the creator will come and uncreate. Perhaps you might even note that the order of destruction listed there in verse 2 is the exact reverse order of creation. It begins with man, then beasts, then birds, and then finally fish, uh, reversing the order that we see in Genesis chapter 1. And so clearly, from the very beginning, we see what Zephaniah is talking about goes beyond simply two nations warring in a distant time in a distant land. That, that, that battle, which he will talk about, is a picture of this coming day that he talks, to, talks about in verses 2 and 3. But his focus then turns to his judgment upon the people of Judah in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he says. And so now he begins this prediction of the coming destruction on Jerusalem, which, as I mentioned, will occur uh, climatically at the hands of the Babylonians in the year 586, about 40 years after Zephaniah gives this prophecy. Jerusalem will be sacked, the walls will be demolished, uh, the temple will be destroyed, and the remaining people of Judah will be deported. And this, of course, would have been unthinkable to them. Judah, of course, is the covenant people of God, it is the favored tribe of God. Jerusalem is the city of God's own enthronement, the place of his own temple. And it's perhaps because they thought they were the favored nation and their favored status that they were somehow exempt from God's righteous anger. It might even seemed silly to them. Of course, it seems silly to many today, doesn't it? Maybe even to you. Maybe even reading this passage or hearing Hearing me speak about God's anger seems very outdated, like an outdated idea of a primitive God. And we might think, haven't we moved past that point? We now understand that God is love. And therefore, we conclude if God is love, God cannot be angry. That's what we're told. And yet, what does Scripture say? You notice in verse 15, he'll talk about the day of wrath. You say, well, whose wrath is that? We'll see in verse 18, the day of the wrath of the Lord. We get to chapter 2 and verse 3, even an invitation to, to find mercy. We are told repeatedly of the day of the anger of the Lord. And so I share with you this morning, based upon the biblical authority, that God is angry at sin and sinners. God is angry. Now that's not all God feels. I think this is our problem because when you and I are angry, our anger seems to dominate us emotionally. I do not think we should think of God in that way. That God at at the same time can be angry and joyful and happy and peaceful and yet he is filled with wrath as to what's taking place upon this world. My Christian brothers and sisters, beware of the pressure today to reject the doctrine that God has anger. If we toss aside God's anger, we, one, undermine the authority of Scripture like books of Zephaniah. Number two, we undermine the reason for the cross. The crucifixion becomes senseless unless we understand that God is angry at sin and sinners. And third, I think we undermine the love of God. 
To deny the anger of God is to deny the love of God. I've shared with you before. The opposite of anger is, uh, opposite of love is not anger, it is apathy. If, if a drunk driver tragically crashes into your family and, and, and takes their life, you would not contradict your love for your family by being angry at that sin. Right? In fact, your anger would prove your love. Apathy would contradict your love. Right? If you say, I don't really care. And so we, if we do love deeply, and God does and loves perfectly, then it would be right and good for God to be angry when injustice oppresses and when lies obscure his truth and when sin mars the creation in which he loves. His love demands a retribution on evil. It demands a terrible judgment. In fact, he goes on to explain the sins that bring this judgment. Consider secondly this morning. The reason for the day seems to me that you could um, list them in, in various ways. I'm just going to group them into three for our time's sake. Three reasons why God will bring judgment according to Zephaniah. The first, you know, it will be idolatry. Look in verse 4, reading on. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priest. Baal is the god of the Canaanites. He would long be a temptation to the people of Israel living in the land of Canaan. Baal would be the god of fertility. What that means is, according to their theology, Baal would control uh, livestock, he would control crops, he would control your children. Therefore, Baal was the key to economic prosperity. If you wanted to be rich, you wanted to be maybe even just comfortable, you might be tempted to worship Baal. Sadly, Baal worship was particularly heinous. You did not worship Baal through singing or through offerings or, or through uh, listening to sermons or praying. You worship Baal through ritualized public sex acts that were taking place publicly in the temple courts at this day. In fact, we know previous kings of Judah institutionalized Baal worship, even um, um, letting the, the shrine prostitutes of Baal attach their rooms where they lived to the very walls of the temple building. And so this is a very kind of public act of idolatry. Some other idolatry was hidden, as you see in verse 5. Those who bow down on roofs to the hosts of heaven. This is the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. This is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. And the privacy of your roof, under the cover of darkness, they would bow down and worship the heavenly hosts. Uh, and we, we do know from archaeological evidence that even synagogues dating back as long as 200 B.C. had in their floors, many of them, zodiac signs engraved as they brought in astrology into the worship of Yahweh. And so they, they're giving themselves over to idolatry. And that idolatry, by the way, remains in our day. That we too, do we not, especially in this land in which we love so much, are tempted to do almost anything for prosperity and comfort. We may not bow down to Baal, but we long for what he offers, and we will therefore take jobs we don't like. We will enter into relationships that we know are unwise. We will spend money that we do not have because we desire power, we desire comfort, we desire intimacy, and we are willing to bow down quite often to whatever promises us that. That evil, that idolatry continues this day. And I, I would imagine, if I might be so bold, it probably continues to some degree in your own heart, as it does in mine. And the Lord is, the Lord is not pleased with that. The Lord has anger for that sin. 
But it's just not idolatry. You'll note, secondly, it's adultery as well. We, and I mean what I mean by adultery. I mean spiritual adultery. Well, look what, what's going on there in verse 5. It says, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Or maybe your translation says Molech, who would be the god of the Ammonites. If Baal was bad, well, Molech was worshipped through child sacrifice. Solomon, because of his foreign wives, would erect a shrine of Molech there in Jerusalem. And you notice, by the way, that these individuals haven't forsaken God. What does he say? They swear to God and they swear to Molech. They just kind of supplemented the worship of God. Sounds very inclusive, doesn't it? Sounds very contemporary or respectful. And, we, and do we not today face those same pressures? The, 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 the constant mantra that we're told that, that you know, Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and all the rest, we don't worship different gods. It's all the same God. We just call them different names. Maybe we have different rituals, but it's all, it's all the same. And, and therefore, in the last, what, 40 years, we have this very fascinating pressure that's come out of nowhere, really, this, this interfaith movement where, you know, you, you go Muslims and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus, we all go just go to gather together and worship God. And, the, and our culture thinks that's wonderful, and that's beautiful, and that's tolerant, and that's what we ought to do. And I'm telling you, based upon the word of God, God hates it. He hates it. These are people worshiping God, and we'll just add Moloch to it as well. I mean, when God brought them to Sinai, he gave them ten commandments. Do you remember the first? Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Number one. I'm it, he says. Exclusive loyalty to me, he says. God will not tolerate rivals. And we, by the way, we see this in virtually every book of the Old Testament. Now the world finds this Christian stance terribly annoying. That we have this idea that our God is the only true God and there is only one way to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And they, let them be annoyed all they want. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what we shall believe. Is that right, Christian? So please pray for this church. That we will be made faithful to this truth in this inclusive age. You see what's happening to the people of God. These are the people of God. These are the people in God's covenant. And they have lost their way. Do not think that we cannot also lose our way amidst the pressure of the culture that surrounds us. Pray for your own heart. We might not sacrifice our children to Moloch, but we might sacrifice them to our careers or our money. How many of the unborn in our land are sacrificed when they interfere with the plans and the dreams of their parents? Disabled children to this very day, are still tied up to trees in the jungles of Ghana and left to die. They're still, to this very day, cast aside in villages of Guatemala because they are a burden on our lives, and we will sacrifice them in order to have the life that we want. That is not an ancient idea. It is a modern idea, and we as God's people must show that we have no other gods, that we live for his pleasure and his will alone. The third sin that you notice that God identifies is the sin of apathy. This is very interesting to me. He's going from very severe sins 
now to very common sins, really talking about those who don't bother with God much at all, as you see in verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This seems to be the same individuals he's referring to in verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, he says. Those who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Maybe you, you, you have a little footnote there next to the word complacent, or your translation is a little different. The thickening of the dregs. The, the dregs is simply that sludge in the bottom of the wine vat that's good for nothing, that just kind of sits there and thickens. It's that sludge at the bottom of your coffee, if you will. And that's what these people are. They're just kind of just, just sediment, just complacent. They're not doing anything. They don't care about God much at all. I trust they believe in God. I'm sure all the people of Israel believed in God. I imagine they might even be regular in their attendance of worship, perhaps even moral people. But you notice that their faith has no impact upon their daily life. They are settled. They are unmoving. They are complacent. They are spiritually stagnant. And oh, what a danger that is for us today. How many of us say, you know, I used to pray. Now I don't. I talk about prayer. Everybody else thinks I pray. But I don't really. I used to serve. I used to read my Bible. I used to memorize scripture. I used to, I used to. And now somehow we have found ourselves thickening in the bottom and we've become complacent. What do they say? Why do we do this? They say, well, the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. You ever think that way? Maybe you not verbalize it, but you ever live that way? Doesn't matter what I do, God's not gonna do anything about it. Doesn't matter. Why obey? Why serve? Why walk the narrow path that the Lord won't do anything? Or the opposite, I'm going to keep sinning. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't. I'm going to keep it up because God's not going to do anything about it anyway. Those are the people that God is warning here. The Puritans would call them practical atheists. And again, I think there's probably some of that in our hearts. My friends, what about you? These are religious people. You understand that. They, these are the people that come to the temple. These are people that, that bring the sacrifices, and yet God is a non-presence in, in their life. Now, you, you, if, if you're, look, you're religious. You are here listening to a sermon on Zephaniah, and not a short one, right? So unless you've been brought against your will, which I trust is some of you, but most of you have come voluntarily. What does that mean? means you're religious. Yes, we could all agree on that. But does your belief in God change the way you live and think and give and serve? The elders were talking about these ideas on Thursday night, and we identified prayerlessness as a sign of this practical atheism, that we believe in God but we don't believe God will act. That's why we don't pray. We don't think God will do anything. Because if you believe the, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, would listen to you, do you truly believe that? And he will actually respond to what you are saying to him, to the request in which you bring him. You, I guarantee, if you believe that, you would pray. We don't because we think, what good will it do anyway? 
And so weeks go by with little prayer. And before you know it, we're thickening on the dregs. We're growing complacent and apathetic. And God says, I want you to consider my response to these sins. Note, thirdly, the effect of the day. The effect of the day. God says in verse 7 that we ought to be silent. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. He calls us for a, ush, a hushed awe. We, we should be in awe before God. You ever, you ever feel that kind of awe? We don't, we don't get those moments much in our day. Remember the first day you went to the Capitol building maybe? Or you walked up those marble steps and there, you know, the giant bronze Lincoln sitting on your throne and you're just kind of quiet there. Remember, you know, have you ever gone to the summit and looked down in the valley? Or have you ever been fortunate enough to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon? And there, it's a place of silence. It's a place where you feel the immensity around you and you feel the smallness in yourself. It's not a place for silliness. And you sit there and you're in awe. Well, God's calling us to be silent before the Lord. Consider what God will do and we ought to be in awe. Now, there's nothing wrong with loud and expressive joy. Chapter 3 is going to command us to sing loudly and exult with all of our hearts. But there's also times in which when we gather before God, there ought to be this, this, this hushness about us, if you will. This silence before our God. And somehow the church has lost this. We just want, the, the, the focus on the church today is to entertain. We want to applaud and we want to cheer. And many churches are just focusing on that. That's good, of course. But there's sometimes, in fact, sometimes the greatest times are when we are speechless. And God, in light of Zephaniah, I think there is good reason to be speechless. For the day, what does he say there in verse 7? The day of the Lord is near. In fact, a sacrifice has been prepared. Reading on, we read the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. The sacrifice is not substitutionary animals, but as you'll see in a moment, the sacrifice is those who have sinned against him, namely Judah. The consecrated guests will be those who will come and feast upon that sacrifice, namely Babylon. Right? These people, God's people, are suffering because they have abandoned his covenant, are suffering the curses of the covenant, and if you will, be sacrificed, to use the language of Zephaniah, for their own sins. Notice the powerful will not be spared, according to verse 8, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire, those uh, pagan priests in their foreign clothes, the royalty will be punished, we, we learned. And then verse 9, we say, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and, uh, and, and fraud. We're not sure what this leaps over the threshold is. It might be a pagan religious superstition. We know the priest of Dagon would not step on the threshold, the Bible tells us, so they would leap over it. So they're willing to keep these, these uh, religious superstitions. At the same time, they're violent when they grab little girls and little boys and force them into shrine prostitution to bail. And they're, they're deceiving when they tell a struggling farmer, if you'll give up your firstborn son to Molech, he will bless you and you'll be able to therefore feed many children as they come along. And so they keep the religious superstitions and yet commit these, these terrible, terrible acts. It reminds me of a time when, in my 20s, Allegra and I, we went on a, a tour uh, of Europe in a, on a bus, a bus tour, and it was only for people in their 20s. 
And we were the only Christians on the bus. Many of them were single. And you could imagine uh, th- this was uh, not, it wasn't like church service, right? Uh, let me just put it that way. Uh, it was full of sin and, 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 uh, and, and vulgarity and the things that, and drunkenness and, and all, all the rest. And, and it was just before us for a week. And yet every time we walked, it was very fascinating to me. Every time we walked into a little old uh, uh, church there, we, you know, we would come in all these churches, you would go in. Every single one, would, they would walk in, they would bow down to their knees, and they would, they would cross themselves. And then they would go out that night and, and get drunk and, and do all the rest, right? So what they do is, we have this tendency, don't we, to keep the religious superstitions, and our superstition may be, if I come to church, God will bless me. If I give an offering, God will bless me. If I do this, God will bless me. But it doesn't matter how I'm going to live tomorrow night. So I'm going to live like the world tomorrow, and I'm just going to do whatever the world does, and I'm not going to pay any mind to what God does, but if I keep the little religious acts going up, well, God will bless me. Well, you see, no, that's not the case. God's coming for people precisely who thinks he is a, 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 a rabbit's foot or something like that, that, that I'm just going to appease you, and therefore I can live the way I want. Well, you, he goes on, doesn't he? And there, we read that God comes And you notice the silence now gives way to wailing and crying in verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. A wail from the second quarter. A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the traitors are no more. For all who weigh out silver are cut off. You see, you can hear, can't you, if you allow yourself, the crashes of war. The wail and the cries. The fish gate is the northmost gate where the fish were brought in. It's where Babylon would attack. The second quarter there is the newest development in Israel, also in the north, where the rich were building their homes and living in. And so we read this judgment's going to come down from the north, but it won't just stay there. It's going to search them all out, for verse 12 tells us, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men. There's a thoroughgoing search throughout the land. Who is God searching for? Well, we've already seen those who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These are the ones who assume God will not act. Just going on living for things, living for goods. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. You see, what they discovered in the year 586, that this do-nothing God they assumed is not really much of a do-nothing God. He's a patient God, but he will act. I don't know if you can see the picture. There they are, bowing on their roofs, worshiping the stars, respected pagan priests in all their gowns, walking through God's city, the rich moving into the new suburbs up north, complacent, happily earning their money, all of them oblivious to the gathering thunderclouds above. And all of these prophecies on Jerusalem that Zephaniah brings leads him to once again discuss the final judgment in which God will come one day. You see in verse 14, he transitions, doesn't he? The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. 
A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Six times we read a day, a day, a day, a day, a day, a day. Once again, we're reminded of creation. And once again, we're reminded on these six days, if you will, God comes not as a creator, but as a warrior, as a judge. That day, the mighty warrior in whom they trust shrieks in terror, we see in verse 14. On that day, the fortified cities in which they trust melt away. On that day, there is alarm as the shelter of their walls and towers will be no more. In fact, he says it's a day of day's defeat, as we see in verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. It's a day in which all wealth will fail them. How many in that day and how many in our day trust in their silver and their gold for their happiness and for their security. I want you to see there that if you live for these things, they will fail you. There's Mark Dever, who pastors in D.C., who is fond of reading from a medieval play entitled Every Man. Every Man is the name of the main character, and of course he represents every man. The play begins when God sends death to every man to let every man know that he will soon stand before God and give an account of his life, a defense, if you will. And so throughout the play, every man goes to people in his life and says, will you come with me to help me make my defense? They all say no. His spouses no. His children say no. His friends say no. They all say this is a journey in which you must go on your own. And finally, he comes to his goods, which would, well, they would play it out, there'd be a chest on the stage and the actor standing from underneath. And he has this conversation with his goods and he says, goods, will you come with me to stand before God? And good says once again, no, every man is crushed. He says, alas, I have loved you and had great pleasure all the days of my life on goods and treasure. Goods, that is to your own damnation without lessening, for my love is contrary to love everlasting. Every man says, though now I was deceived or unaware. Good says, what did you think? I am yours. Every man, I had thought so. Goods, nay, every man, I say no. As for a while, I was lently, a season you may have had me in prosperity, my condition is man's soul to kill. If I save one, a thousand do I spill. Do you think that I will follow thee? Nay, from this world, not truly. Every man responds saying, I have thought otherwise. Goods. Therefore to your soul, goods is a thief. For when you are dead, this is my guise, another to deceive in the same wise. Oh, false good, cursed you be, you traitor to God. Thou hast deceived me and caught me in your snare. Goods, Mary, you put yourself in my care. Of that I am glad. I must needs laugh. I cannot be sad. 
Every man concludes, ah, goods, you have long my heartly love. I gave you that which should be the Lord's above. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I know the temptations that you face, for I face them as well. Do not give your heart to silver and gold. I like things, you like things, and all the things we like will pass away. Some of them within years will be in, a, in the dumpster. But all of them will pass away, and the people around you 10 billion years from now will continue to exist. Be warned that money deceives. It offers you no lasting joy. It certainly offers you no salvation, for we are not saved with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so they were deceived. And the climax of God's judgment comes. The wrath of the Lord Yahweh, as you see in verse 18, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I do not know if there could be more troubling words than there in Zephaniah 1.18. Of course, these are words we quickly dismiss. Words some of you are dismissing even now. Many will say, many will say, this day will never, never, never happen. That's what the Judeans said. We've had a Davidic king for 400 years. God's temple's in our city. We are under his covenant. This will not happen. We are secure. And of course, Jer Jerusalem was not secure Babylon, Babylonians destroyed them. Tens of thousands were killed. The temple was sacked. The rest taken into exile. Scripture is unequivocal. This day is coming. And it will be a day unlike anything humanity has seen before. I don't know how God could be any more clear, any more emphatic. It's not really a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of submission. God says it. Will you believe it? It is a day unlike any day. The extent of woe on that day will be unimaginable. In fact, I think it's captured well in the medieval poem, Dies Irae. Many have written music to it. Perhaps you've heard Mozart's rendition or Verde's. A day of wrath and doom impending. David's word with sibyls blending. Heaven and earth in ashes ending. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth. On that day, your wealth, your accomplishments, your beauty, your reputation, your goodness, it will not save you. Judgment is coming. In fact, we're told explicitly why there in verse 17, aren't we? Because they have sinned against the Lord. They've sinned against the Lord. I wonder, would anyone here deny that they've sinned against the Lord? So many people are saying, well, I'm going to stand before God because of my goodness. I'm a good person. I've done good works. Let me ask you, if, if, if a husband were to walk into his bedroom and find his wife in a bed with another man, would it do her any good to plead all the good that she has done for him? Would it do her any good to plead that she took vows some years ago, but they obviously have no bearing on the life she lives. Would it do any good for her at that time to say, well, I may have done this, but I'm certainly better than the ladies down the road. 
No, my friends. It would do her no good. All the good that she's done, all the vows she take is destroyed in that betrayal. He said they sinned against who? Against the Lord. It's not simply they've broken some legal command. They have rebelled against God himself. I tell you this morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are gambling your entire eternity on the belief that there is not a good and holy God. I believe there is. I think scripture is unequivocal in teaching there is. And maybe you, maybe you believe that. Maybe you've confessed that, to, that you believe in Christ, but your life does not bear it out. Do not put your hopes on what you did years ago. Trust the Lord now. Yield your life to the Lord now. Follow after the Lord now. Because God gives this warning so that you might seek him and escape. And so briefly consider, lastly, that we can hide from this day. That there is a whisper of hope amongst the shouts of judgment. Now, the judgment's coming. It's not going to be turned back. The time has been set. All the universe is going to be overturned and consumed for God to recreate it. But it's possible that we might find shelter. As Zephaniah here in chapter 2 gives us a dim light amongst this darkness. You see in verse 1, he says, gather together, gather, O shameless nation. Right? He says, come together, bind yourself together. Why? Before the day arrives, verse 2, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chafe, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. You see the repetition before, before, before. He is communicating the urgency that is before us. This is not something that we wait on. We flee from his wrath. Now go before what? The burning anger of God comes upon you. And then he gets into verse 3 and gives us very strange advice indeed. He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. That might, that might seem strange to you if you're not familiar with Scripture. Run from the Lord. That I understand. But seek the Lord. That's like the mouse seeking the cat, isn't it? Well, where else will you find shelter? What other help is there from God? Who shall seek him? Well, you see there in verse 3, those who do his commands seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The humble will seek him. The humble are those who acknowledge their sin and their need of salvation. We're to seek him in obedience. We're to turn from the sins that plague us and obey the commands of our God. We're to seek him in righteousness. For Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Seek him in what? That you may be hidden on this day. That you might find shelter on this day of God's great wrath. The day of the Lord is coming. And it will be a day of wrath. But it will not be the greatest day of wrath. Nor is the greatest day of wrath in 586 when Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Nor was the greatest day of God's wrath in the days of Noah when all the world was flooded. The greatest day of God's wrath was on a hill called Calvary. When God's wrath was poured upon his son. You see, Jesus never bowed to an idol. He never got on his rooftop and laid himself down worshiping the stars above. Jesus did not have any apathy in his life. He did not neglect God in any way. Jesus, in fact, was the only one who walked humbly with God. He's the only one who has truly, with all that he has, sought God's obedience and God's righteousness. And yet, what did Jesus receive as he hung upon the cross? Was it not the day of the Lord? 
Was it not the burning anger of the wrath of God, God's anger against sin? It was for him a day of ruin and anguish. It was a day of darkness and distress. It was a day when our fierce warrior shrieked in defeat. It was a day of Christ crying and wailing. It was a day of wrath upon Christ. And yet it was at the same time a day of unending mercy and grace for those who would hide themselves in Jesus. You see, Christ has become our refuge. He is our shelter. We need not, therefore, offer our firstborn to some petty pagan God that he might bless us because God has offered us his firstborn that he might save us from his holy anger against our sin. I tell you, the Bible is emphatic. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. For Christ has received it all. God, Christian, I tell you, though he is angry at sin and sinners, is not and never shall be angry at you. For Christ has received his just wrath. Christ has been punished because of our idolatry. Christ has been crucified because of our apathy. Christ has been judged for our greed and he now is our shelter and it's under his blood that the angel of God's wrath shall pass over. I ask you this morning, have you taken shelter in Christ? Is he your refuge? As Thomas Wilson, a preacher, lay dying some hundreds of years ago, there on his deathbed, he looked at his gathered children. And one, one last message for them. If you have an opportunity to have a deathbed, I wonder what your last words will be. Maybe, maybe some estate planning. Maybe, uh, maybe a warm memory. Maybe a joke. Maybe some casual remark. Well, Thomas Wilson, with great seriousness, is one who would soon stand before God directed his speech towards his eldest daughter of whom he had a particular concern. And he said to her, look to it that you meet me at that day of judgment. Not, excuse me, let me try that again. Look to it that you meet me not at that day of judgment unprepared. Are you prepared? You can only be prepared in Christ. Our Father, we thank you that though we deserve the wrath of a holy God, we have been sheltered from it in Jesus. Our hope is not in our goodness. Our hope is not in our religious activity. Our hope is in our repenting faith in Jesus. So, Father, let that be upon the foundation upon which we stand. And even as you search our own lives, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of the wrath in which he has endured for us, how can we then continue on in idolatry, greed, and apathy? 
Will you not, in light of what we have been saved from, work within us a fiery devotion to Christ? That we would not minimize the payment in which he has paid by continuing in the sins willingly for which he has borne your anger. And I pray for those here this morning, we pray for those here this morning who do not believe in Christ. Perhaps there are some who think this is awfully silly. Maybe something 200 years ago we might say. Surprised to hear people believe it now. Will you not at least ask them this question, Father, on what hope do they base their life? Why would they think your word to be untrue? What better authority is there? I pray, Father, that you would even let them begin to ask the question, what if there is a holy God who will hold us all accountable that they might find shelter in the mercy that Jesus offers them? Even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.